0: organized sport for a lot of our youngsters is the first time they're ever actively even allowed in someone else's personal space. And now you got guys like me and you telling you to like, you know, do this aggressively and smash them to the ground and roll and fall and you know what I mean, like people are breathing on me, they're sweating on me, there's grunts and and impact and like, I'm not sure I like this whole thing. So how do we kind of, how do we fill in those free play rough and tumble gaps?
1: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high performance sport. So, on the face of it, this episode with Andy Ryland from USA Football will lend itself to those working in American football, in rugby, and any collision sport. But the more I think about it, the more applicable I think it is to any sports that have contact. So basketball, soccer, ice hockey, building confidence in those contact moments. I don't think he's done enough, especially from my experience as a player and a coach. They definitely don't do enough and the confidence isn't instilled in athletes as much as it could be. And I think there's some of the information in here from Andy does an amazing job of putting that information into frameworks, into recommendations for sessions, grappling, Wrestling, things you can do in a warm up, things you can do in a cool down, things you can do at the start of a session. So it's a really interesting topic. And I think one, like I say, is applicable to any sport, not just those working in high collision sports like American football and rugby. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Andy. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The Powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to TeamBuilder.com and sign up with promo code Sportsmith to start your thirty-day free trial. Also sponsoring this podcast is Vald. So I'm really proud to have VILD as a sponsor again and after a recent visit to VILD HQ in Brisbane for their annual VILDCON event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office, of less than 20 employees back then it's amazing to see how far they've come they now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations so an incredible uh, rise to where they are now so this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about VALD, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at VALDperformance.com. So without further ado, over to the episode with Andy Ryland. Andy, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you.
0: Uh, Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, a long time listener, uh... Podcast podcasting my commutes to work so uh kind of strange and honored to, to be here after listening to so many uh guests and so many episodes over the years
1: my pleasure it's great to have you and thank you uh thank you for the support over the years and i'm glad i've it, not necessarily me but i'm glad the guests that we've had on the podcast have, have kept you company in them <laughs> long drives but as we were chatting about earlier i'm glad, I'm glad those drives don't exist as As much as they used to because of of working from home and whatnot but um andy would you mind just giving us a bit of an intro to you like what's what's your background and what you're currently doing
0: yeah uh currently i'm the senior manager of education and training at usa football so american football's uh, national governing body here in the states uh primarily our work is in the youth space and youth for us is under 14 uh before they go into the high school ranks where we have our structured high school competitions uh but uh, been doing that for about uh, 11 years. Previous to that, I was an uh, American football coach at the collegiate level. Previous to that, I was a U.S. national team member uh, in rugby, captain both 15s and 7s. And then previous to that, I was a uh, college football player uh, doing my studies trying to become a strength and conditioning coach. So kind of the, the strange world of back and forth between the two sports of football and rugby. And again, started out wanting to be an s Uh, was convinced along the process uh, by my coaches that maybe I had the technical tactical aptitude and got into sport coaching. And now I'm kind of applying some of that trade as far as coach education, technical, tactical, physical development, uh, kind of all things at that national governing body level. And then uh, really enjoy kind of some consulting uh, with the elite side, NFL, college, professional rugby, even uh, just to kind of scratch the itch of HP. Well, the day to day is kind of that uh, larger player pool of uh, youth, high school, and and that uh, maybe more recreational space.
1: Bit of a boring question, but I think it's it's interesting for for me. Where does USA football sit? In relation to the nfl and and college
0: yeah so we're an independent uh group so um i guess it would be similar to the way uh some countries um have independent professional leagues uh you know outside of the rfu or outside of whatever that that home governing body is so the nfl is its own entity ncaa sports which is our college governing body is its own entity And then we actually have the NFHS, which is our national high school federation, which is its own entity. Now, those entities we work with, we consult with, we, you know, look at group projects or they, you know, targeted projects for particular areas of the population, kind of depending on age and performance level. But technically we sit as four independent bodies with really very specific goals. So as I mentioned, like our target market is that under 14 youth playing the game. Once they uh, get into the high school space, if they continue to play football, they'll be more under uh, the governance of the National Federation. Uh, once they go to the college, they're under the NCAA. And then they go to professional, it's the the NFL. So it's just kind of the way our, our structure is set up. We have these four bodies. Uh, we all attend each other's meetings. We all do all that fun stuff, but we do operate independently.
1: So someone could come through the ranks from... What, 10 11 whatever up to the pros and not actually ha- come into contact with you guys oh because they wouldn't have to because it's different part yeah they guys. wouldn't
0: they wouldn't have to be with just us or be like kind of registered with us or or anything like that though um you know as they go the the decision makers just slightly change as to who's over overseeing them so again to be a collegiate or to be an nfl coach uh, this is always interesting there's um there's no coaching certification requirements so those coaches would never have to come through us as the recognized uh governing body to to kind of meet their credentialing or meet their their education uh i've at least in my experience with soccer and rugby and overseas people are always kind of taken aback a little bit like that. But uh, the only qualification to be an NFL or a collegiate coach is to honestly probably have past success and have somebody judge you good enough for the job uh, because of how you did at your last place. There's no formal requirements. So um, in the high school space, in the youth space, there are coaching certification requirements to like make sure you are uh, capable and certified to oversee youth because we'd be under 18 at that point and considered juvenile. But once we get into that adult pro space, uh, and collegiate with NIL, we'll, we'll call it pro now, uh, you're, you can kind of just be good, uh, or if somebody judge you to be good, and you can get a paycheck.
1: Interesting. So what's, what's your influence? What, what influence have you taken from your rugby days into the American football side and the, I suppose the education training stuff that you do now.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, so long story is so my, my father, uh, was a long time rugby coach here in the States at the collegiate level. Uh, 10-year, 11-year head coaching career. Uh, went to multiple Final Fours, I guess sem- semifinals for, for most of the world, but we love the Final Four uh, moniker here in the States. Um, never won a national championship. Uh, I think went to three national championship games, uh, but lost every time. So great dinner table talk. Uh, love to poke him about that one. And so I grew up with the game. Uh, I was always around the game. Um, and then at, collegiately I played, and then, like I said, spent some time with the U.S. national team, and it just exposed me to really a a different style of coaching. Uh, Football being such a structured martial sport, really because of the huddle and the stop in between plays where you have an opportunity for a coach to tell you what to do and call a play and do those things. You have this very regimented structure of coaching. Uh, And then you get into a free flow sport like rugby, which may be more similar to to basketball or hockey or or soccer here. But, uh, you know, you get that kind of player centered decision making uh, process focused coaching. And so that was huge for me because it really opened up some doors to other ways of coaching, other ways of doing things. And then obviously you get into the technical side. Uh, football's football's rugby's rugby they're very different games tactically and therefore not all of the techniques uh carry over you know the the idea of in one sport you're by law allowed a free line to the ball carrier and football you know they the nfl level they pay guys 20 million dollars a year to block you and not let you get to the ball carrier so there's some interesting little differences there but there certainly are things that do cross over. And by being able to meet with great coaches, being able to be experienced to that, getting into that community and then continuing that through like kind of the rest of my my life and my career, uh, you get to talk to those guys, you get to pick their brains and you get to, if you have a good enough lens to filter it through, there's amazing things you you can pick up and you can, you can take from it. So whether it's a little bit of a technique thing, uh, obviously been highly influenced by like kind of the grapple-based training, which was just an everyday part of our warm-up in in rugby. And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off, and you're like, why don't any football people do this? Like, they lift weights, and they work on their skills, but there's none of this kind of special strength, you know, SPE uh, style of training that's involved. It's really polarized, and, and maybe that can be a thing. In 2015, I guess it was the Seattle Seahawks put out a, a YouTube video. You can still find it floating around, but on there, um, how rugby inspired their tackling technique. And when that video came out, uh, I've said this over and over again, through no kind of special skill, just through luck of my experience, people were like, if only there was an American football coach that also played a high level of rugby and could help us like translate some of this stuff or could talk back and forth about some of the differences or maybe even introduce me to a high-level professional rugby coach who I whose brain I could pick and suddenly there I was and I became really useful in the football community because I had these connections and these people and could uh, talk some of that technique and help translate and so that really kind of started uh, I guess my my spot as maybe a, a skills consultant and kind of a technical analyst in that space because I, you know like I said I just had been lucky enough to have that experience of like i had played that sport at at the highest level i had, had my caps and i was currently coaching uh american football so we just kind of built from there and continued to, to go forward and uh met some great people since and and then have been able to kind of create some packages and programs that i i guess people like and help help them out so we, we keep doing it
1: so on the on the tackle side of things because i think this is this is something that I. I from me who's got more of a head in rugby than than American football but that, that's that's by the bye what can you guys in American football and you because you as well in have a rugby background translate from the rugby side to the American football side and what does that framework look like i suppose from a from a youth level as well and then progressing that on into into pros what can what can you take and what's that framework look like
0: yeah i think the the biggest thing and the easiest Thing was simply the you know that rugby was teaching various tackles at at the time you know when I was playing like you know it was very common for us to talk about choke versus chop and you know what are the right situations and when is this appropriate and in my football playing experience up to that point I had only ever been taught one tackle and some of those tackles differed coaching staff to coaching staff or team to team on what they wanted but there was a tackle type. And I think if you would talk to most football coaches, probably the biggest thing that has changed since that 2015 is a realization that different situations may require different tackle types. And if our players are going to make these different tackle types, it's probably best that we're training these various different tackle types instead of having a tackle. Uh, obviously, I know with the tackle laws and uh, community rugby coming down, it's, it's a little bit different, but obviously at the upper levels, we're still looking at, you know, when is choke, when is chop, you know, or I guess you call it whatever you want, different terminology, but when are those the right things? What are the different kind of finishes that you may have? Uh, what does a second man in do? And so some of those things became really interesting conversation points uh, around um, the tackle in American football. And then the big thing uh, from the health and safety standpoint, or which was really kind of a, a revolution for a lot of people of my age, was head placement, where if you look at American football, there was a time where the head was always placed in the side of the tackle. It would look very much similar to what we would now call a, quote, rugby tackle. I believe um, kind of as helmet technology improved going through the years, where you put your helmet became actively taught different. I was taught in my football career by very well-meaning, high-quality coaches by, uh, you know, to tackle with my face. And the idea was if you tackle with your nose, your head will be up and you'll protect your neck. And conveniently, you have this giant plastic shell on your head. So like, you're not gonna, you know, like get a bloody nose and bust your eye and your lip and that kind of thing. So I was I was actively taught tackle with your nose. uh, And for the sole purpose of neck safety. And to 17, 18, 19 year old Andy Ryland, that made a lot of sense. It wasn't until afterwards that, you know, some things came out in the news and the media that people started saying, hey, maybe we're we're missing something here and trying to actively reduce head and helmet impacts became a big deal. And so Getting your head to the side and more shoulder striking became a hot priority. Now, the other side of it was, if we're looking at an angle or a side-on tackle uh, during that same kind of time period, we'll say of, of helmet increase, putting your head in front of the ball carrier was the the technique of choice in American football. I have this giant plastic shell on. I'm not quite as worried about uh, you know getting kneed or or something like that because. This thing is going to protect me. So the head was always placed in front of the ball carrier. Again, when the same kind of revolution and and information outpouring happened, people started to say, like, maybe that's not the best idea. And maybe putting your head behind the carrier the way the guys without helmets do uh, should be our preferred method. So those were kind of the big revolutions and kind of the big things uh, that got taken Um, from kind of rugby and have really grown we'll say over that last kind of kind of 10 years and then to your point on the youth as these techniques at the upper levels change as information change there becomes an instant filter down effect and so the the first thing you would hear from the elite level coaches is trying to change some of these embedded techniques in my players is really difficult You know, they've been doing it for 20 or 25 years this way. What we really have to do is get the next generation of players brought up in a system in which head behind the ball carrier, shoulder strike, head to the side is the only way they've ever known. And that becomes really a part of who they are within the sport. And that technique becomes highly stabilized. And, you know, as a player moves from team to team and coach to coach, they're all speaking the same language and they're not going from strike with your face to tackle with your shoulder to back to strike with your face or put your head in front that there's really this unified language starting from their very entry-level experience uh, that they're practicing those techniques which are going to, again, prioritize the shoulder, de-emphasize uh, the helmet and truly talk o- openly about uh, putting the head and helmet in a safe place. There, there was a time where when this first came out like i said back in that 2015 era it would be very common for coaches to say we don't even talk about the head you know we talk about the shoulder we talk about where we want to put the shoulder we talk about making good shoulder contact but we don't want to talk about the head and maybe it was fear of some of the the things that were in the news about injuries and and those kind of things and i always felt that was a a massive oversight like if you're not actively telling players where to safely put their head we're we're kind of missing a trick there and so that became some of the things that that got filtered down that we need to actively teach and reinforce and drive this behavior change through our technical models and our technical teachings.
1: So what impact, no pun intended, what impact are we are we seeing since that time on head and neck injuries, concussions? Is that is that is that starting to filter through to a point where data's been collected on these kind of things and yeah, the, what impact are you seeing so the
0: problem is obviously that the technical change isn't the only measure that's gone into place so you know you're also talking about uh the limiting of live contact in training sessions you know uh similar to what uh world rugby did with the the contact minutes and contact intensities but you know you're limited in the number of contacts or the amount of live contact you're allowed in training um the limiting of what equipment is allowed to be worn or how many like full padded live sessions per day you can have uh, during preseason camp, you know, they limited the amount of two a days uh, and that were allowed to be had. So now you're going to one practice a day. So you're limiting total exposure rates. I'm um, sure kind of it made big news. But, you know, the NFL uh, did their studies the last couple of years with the Guardian caps, which was the extra Padding that went over top of the helmet shell for high collision players. So we've seen uh, decreases like in numbers of uh, concussions that have occurred during training. The problem is when you have this multivariate problem where I can point to like, here's four big changes. We changed technique, we changed number of practices, we changed the amount of contact in practice. We've also added this uh, potential unique uh, force reducing. Uh, padding, which one of those is responsible for the largest chunk of that decrease? Uh, uh, you know, I I don't have the answer, but I know that cumulatively, you know, we are seeing decreases, most specifically in training and in practice. Uh, like all sports, you know, the game uh, is the game, and crazy things happen, and uh, you know, people may do some things in some unique situations to try to win a game that we wouldn't say are the best technically, uh, but uh, those things happen. So the numbers are trending in the right direction. And I do think that the technical modeling has a large part to do with it. Uh, the coach's reinforcement of that has a large part, but statistically we're, we just can't kind of say, ha, we've, you know, we've decreased it by X because of Y.
1: So if there's a, a coach out there who wants to implement some really structured tackle training, that's potentially not doing it right now, or it's informal, what would be the best place to start for you to advise them to, to implement these with the frameworks or the, um, the technical model?
0: Yeah, so like at, at USA Football, as part of our coach certification, uh, uh, the tackle and the block is included in that. Now, I, I'll be the first to tell you our level one coaching certification is truly a health and safety certification uh it's not you know nuts and bolts kind of how to coach the sport or or technical tactical models uh blocking and tackling is included in our safety certification obviously because there is a safety component of those skills that rises above the other ones you know very similarly it would be like the you know ruck scrum tackle in rugby where you go okay these these contact these skill areas have the most Uh, health and safety impact. So we want to make sure we're giving them a base on that. So that is included in our, in our certification, but we've also kind of have this belief at USA football that you shouldn't have to pay money or take a certification to keep your kids safe. So we have free resources on our entry levels within the tackle model. We call it our shoulder tackle system, but it's like a 22 drill uh, program that outlines the basics of what the techniques are, what are some of the fundamentals and foundational movements and then, you know, what would be uh, the three most common tackle types and give some kind of some drill series for each of the three tackle types. And for us, that's going to be uh, the classic kind of upper body tackle, uh, which, again, we could use rugby terminology and, and talk about like a choke, choked style tackle. Uh, you know, that's going to be our form tackle. We have a thigh and drive tackle, which is going to be our lower body tackle with kind of, you know, run your feet, leg drive finish. And then the thigh and roll tackle where, you know, we snatch the legs. We're not in position to leg drive, so we're going to Uh, roll out of it, take the base away, and drop the player. So it's really that introductory level about leverage, head placement, body position, and then where the three most common areas you'll see. We do have advanced materials um, that are paid services. Those were actually created in conjunction with Richie Gray. Uh, So Scotsman, uh, rugby guy, well-known for his work in rugby, I believe actually wrote the uh, tackle-ready curriculum for uh, world rugby as well. So it's kind of interesting now that our tackle curriculums for both USA football and world rugby uh, were written kind of by the same <laughs> the same two people, if you will and and going back and forth to kind of standardize some of the the true best practices.
1: You're taking me right back to my school days with them three tackle types i'm I'm picturing a, a northern northern English cold winter shorts and t-shirt because you're not allowed to wear trousers going through these tackle techniques get down the floor where it's absolutely rock hard took me right back Uh, yeah right no
0: a hundred percent and yeah that's we're trying to do the same thing obviously we we luck out that american football is a uh starts off in the summer so you get to learn in the in the warm months it's not till the end of the season uh where you're you're miserable and cold and rolling around on the rock hards hope hoping that the uh the field will take a stud and the game's going to be allowed to go uh so i guess that's one good thing about starting when we do like i said um your entry-level teaching days are, are fun and nice weather
1: so, so when it comes to prepping the body for this kind of contact or contact across the board what's what's your guidance what's your anecdotal thoughts what's your opinion on this kind of training to, to prep the body for the things that we just talked about.
0: Yeah. So at the, the two kind of distinctions, I would say one at the upper level, um, when we're talking those more elite players, again, my experience playing with the U S national team, uh, playing division one in Ireland, you know, going to the Iran's Academy down in New Zealand, kind of being exposed to some of these things, uh-huh. like just that basic grapple tumble crawling body position style warm up was something we did every day. And I, started to think back like why didn't we do this in football like you know your basic dynamic warm-up is very locomotion based and then we'd be like all right now go run into each other as hard as you can and be like whoa wait a second like you know what i really miss i really miss like some of that pummeling and some of that grappling and some of those uh you know shoulder battle push-pull games that that Kind of made me feel like I was ready for that competitive contact uh, before we got into that session. And even if you were using uh, shields and pads and things, like I felt better having done that and getting ready for, uh, for that style of training. So that's the first thing that I brought over with teams and people I was working with. The second thing, and this is maybe very specific to American football, is... Um, our NCAA rules at the collegiate level and the NFL Players Association uh, rules that they've inserted with the NFL create really long training breaks in which, quote, football activities are not allowed to be done. So there's some really long strength and conditioning blocks within the training calendar. So for the collegiate level, you have a winter training block and a summer training block, and those can be anywhere from eight to To 12 weeks so if you think you have an eight week block in the winter and then a 12 week block in the summer where technically you're not supposed to do football activities you're just lifting weights and running well then you go back to the sport and you're going holy mackerel, like, why does my body feel so miserable? Uh, You know, (laughs) this is a brand new stimulus I'm not ready for. So we kind of found that if we're introducing some of that competitive grappling based things, that body to body contact, that push pull, that strain, we could keep some of those skills sharp and you're never going to mimic right a, a practice collision, uh, but you could at least bridge the gap. You could make going from lifting weights to running into someone feel a lot less different. By by this, we call it prep for contact and this grappling-based training. And that worked really well to kind of keep the guys sharp, keep the guys fresh, and also contributed to some skill learning. Again, imagine taking 12 weeks off of the season where, by rule, you're not allowed to tackle. And then you go back into training camp, you know, and normally within five or six days – like you're, you're back into tackling after you've kind of gone through your the acclimatization period. And so we wanted to continue to build on those skills, not only because they're important for winning games, but also, again, there's a huge health and safety aspect Technical accuracy has a massive safety component within the tackle space. If I'm out of time, you know, those milliseconds, if I'm not judging space and speed correctly, if I don't nail my body positions, if I'm a little bit slow, if I'm upright, if my head and shoulder isn't quite where I want it, we, we know the risks that you're putting yourself under. So we try to bridge that gap. The NFL, um, the break can even be longer. We have uh, – we have NFL athletes that'll tell you that they don't tackle for upwards of twenty weeks in a solid straight block. Where the season ends, uh, there's very strict rules on how much contact can be in the OTAs in the off season. And if you're a better player, you may not be. Uh, they may not be risking a lot of contact work in in any of the off season or even in the early preseason. So guys will say, like, I haven't, I haven't competitively tackled in twenty weeks. Well, okay. That's going to be detrimental to skill development, uh, not even skill development. You're probably going to just get rusty and there's going to be some skill degradation. Well, how do we, again, how do we try to bridge that gap? So these prep for contact activities became really useful there. When we go down to the youth levels, what we found kind of working with um, the American development model, which is the U.S. Olympic Committee's version of an LTAD program Uh is that, you know, kids today have much less free play activity exposure. And with that lack of free play, and let's be honest, our our more litigious society, there's a real lack of rough and tumble play. You know, people of our age, you probably think about the games we played at recess or at the school parks and on the school grounds. And there's no way That, you know, today uh, after lunch at your recess, they would let you play those kind of full contact, you know, football, rugby style games that we did uh, because of, you know, fear of injury and and that, like I said, that litigiousness. So the kids aren't exposed to that contact. And uh, I'm not going to say I I made it up or anything, but I started saying this at clinics and and people really took to it. But organized sport for a lot of our youngsters is the first time they're ever actively even allowed in someone else's personal space you know it's like you know your bubble hands to yourself all those things and now you got guys like me and you telling you to like you know do this aggressively and smash them to the ground and roll and fall and you know what i mean like don't brace your fall like go down and then place the ball and you know all these things and they are like whoa like people are breathing on me. They're sweating on me. There's grunts and, and impact. And like, I'm not sure I like this whole thing. So how do we kind of, how do we fill in those free play rough and tumble gaps? And so a lot of this grappling, uh, crawling, tumbling, prep for contact activity exposes athletes to a very baseline of impact, going to ground safely, dissipating forces, dealing with dynamic balance and push pull. Kind of competitive uh, fighting situations. And then that can quickly be built. Into collision. So we talk about collision and contact being different. You know, I can start two players pre engaged in contact with each other and allow them to strain and push and pull and fight and grapple. And when you get used to that scenario, then backing it up to a foot, backing it up to a yard, backing it up to closing the space and into contact becomes a much more streamlined progression then kind of starting out like again with this like speed force impact scenario And a lot of our coaches, a lot of the people, you know, say that they've really found benefit in youngsters, uh, both in a physical development standpoint, like I said, dynamic balance, core strength, dealing with these outside forces, but maybe just as importantly, it's the psychological aspect of just being comfortable within these kind of competitive strain, friction based environments.
1: So it's good to get a very quick break in the chat with Andy, hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, it's more about grappling. More about wrestling, but we have a little chat around neck strengthening as well. Did a podcast recently with Gavin Pratt from the UFC, who gave a really interesting view on neck strengthening. Introduced their UFC neck strengthening matrix, which Andy references also. So we've got a really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia, and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm rubber and attack turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade. With the addition of the new Icon X rack range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about play, check out their website, play.us. That's pla dot U-S. And now back to the episode with Andy. I don't know if you've thought about this before. I'm sure you, I'm sure you have. But as a, as a footballer, not a rugby player or an uh, American football player, I would have benefited massively from some of the stuff that you're talking about. Just the, f- the physical contact, the just like been in someone's personal space. I mean, I was a defender, so I should have been comfortable with that, but I was never super comfortable with that. And looking back, there was never there was never any games, practices, drills that put you, me in those positions to make me feel more comfortable with that that contact, which is wild. Like, And I'm just thinking of football here. Like, There's 10, 20 other sports in a similar situation. So it's I mean, interesting was, you say you know, that. 15, 20 years ago.
0: One of... The most notable feedbacks I get personally is from women's football SNCs.
1: I'm not surprised. Saying
0: that, like, in our offseason, we set up these games where it's, you know, like uh, you're in a, a shielding situation, you know, you're trying to protect the ball, and they'll just put a cone down. And, you know, you put a you put a, an attacker or a defender, you know, on my butt and I'm kind of trying to box you out and shield you from the ball like you would see on a, a, a soccer field for me, but a football field for you. And I'm going to hold you and you're going to try to get to the cone and you're working kind of around the circle and trying to get that. Or we're going to put the two of you hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder on a line and you're going to try to push them over the line laterally, you know, back and forth. You know, that very classic hip battle that you see in, in a, a, a football match. And they do these activities with the young girls. So they learn how to push, how to hold space, how to kind of create space, shield the ball. And psychologically, and again, I know this sounds stereotypical, but I, I swear it to be true, that one of the number one feedbacks I get is from, again, the female football coach saying, Our girls are so much more comfortable with this now. And on the field, they're much more aggressive because to step in, to use my hip and my my butt or whatever and, and knock you off your line and create the space and win the ball they just were never exposed to that. They saw it on TV. Their coach was yelling them at them to do it, but there was never a progression and a buildup to it. And they've had a lot of success with that. So whether that's, you know, ice hockey, obviously huge here in the States and and uh, you know dry land training for ice hockey, whether it's basketball players, you know, working in rebounds and, and position down low, or whether it's soccer players, the principles remain the same. Obviously, as the terminology I use is what weapons you're allowed to use, because that sounds cool to my football and rugby coaches. But, you know, whether I'm allowed to use my hands and arms and grab you or whether I have to use my hip and my shoulder and and kind of politely, sneakily bump you so I don't get a penalty, we're using different body parts. But the idea of creating space, holding posture, holding my ground are really the same. So a little bit of creativity, a little sport evaluation, these drills can easily be be changed to meet to meet those situations and you know then you start to see the patterns of like in basketball if a player is cutting through the the uh the paint area trying to get open and we're trying to disrupt that cut and we're going to bump and push and you know you're going to lean into me and you're trying to get to your spot well that looks an awful like a lot awful lot like a player making a run through the box or a set piece in, in soccer. And so you start to see these big, these big carryovers, you know, I'm shielding the ball in, in football. And all of a sudden it looks very much like a puck battle in the corner of an ice hockey rink, obviously sans the fact that I'm on ice skates, but in my dry land training, that works great. Or like here in the States, checking is not, doesn't start until 14 years of age in ice hockey. But that means our 12 year olds are doing these push pull battles off the ice in preparation for when the skill comes into the game so that again they're not going from zero to a hundred they have some baseline of oh yeah i'm going to push and fight and hold my space and there's this friction and he's going to try to move around me and i have to feel him and then react to my movement based on feel and that's one other area that I, i double down on that i think is one of the most developmentally rich areas Inside of contact in most sports, uh, your information is based on feel. It's, you know, that kind of proprioception. It's I'm leaning on you. I'm pushing You're feeling. Am I trying to get around your right shoulder or your left shoulder? But, you know, like I said, you're behind me and I'm, I'm using my butt and my hips to, to hold you out of that space. I'm not looking at you. It's not like that one-on-one defensive, you know, watch his belly button situation. I got to feel where you're moving, where you're pushing, how you're trying to manipulate me. Well, how do you develop a good database of reacting to that, to that feel? Well, it has to be exposure. I have to be in that situation enough that I know what you're trying to do to me and where I need to put my leg to brace or how I need to move to stay in front of you. So developing that aspect of feel within contact situations, I think is the same for all sports. You know, I'd say, obviously, depending on what sport you play, it's going to happen more or less often. You know, if I'm a type five rugby forward, I'm probably going to live in it. If I'm a soccer player, it happens, you know, X amount of times per game. But normally it's key times, right? Like if I don't win that that free ball or if I get bumped off my line, you you now can make a successful header. Or, you know, or so it's like, I need to be able to knock you off that line and do it effectively. So... Timing, uh, the amount it happens differs. The the tools I can use differ, but it's there in every sport. And so especially going back to that ADM, LTAD model, I think it needs to be included in players' basic developmental sequencing. And then we'll just turn the volume up or down as far as uh, uh, what they need based on the sport they ultimately choose.
1: I'm just thinking of like handoffs in American football and, and, and rugby come come to mind. I, I'd, I'd grown up a little bit before I understood and probably executed a solid, and this is football, so not in the face, but in the chest or shoulder, like a successful handoff. And I was like, geez, where did that come from? Like at 16, 17, it just wouldn't have been in my repertoire. But then you're like, oh, wow, if I'd have been able to do that and just been comfortable to use your body in football and that that just i suppose i'm just reinforcing what you've just said in all this all this what you're saying is is transferable to so many different sports and and kids like
0: I... so i'm sorry I, said, I have a great friend who's a a football s and c here in the states and like during their speed work and not just doing like side to side races Whole will have players do side to side races where they're doing the hand fighting, you know, trying to get in front. You know, you do that little hook, you do the little hand, you know, get grabbed. So he's got to have guys doing max speed sprints like under what would be considered our, you know, like operational uh, uh, environment where they're hand fighting while they're doing their 20 meter sprint. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's brilliant. Like, because guess what? We we Max speed training has its benefits. We all love it. But also, like, can I run and fight? with you you know like you said i'm just trying to get that shoulder just in front to win the ball and i'm doing that little that little hook with my hand i'm pulling your arm back i'm grabbing your shoulder uh that little hand off to create space like those are the little things that as a elite athlete like those win games those win space that wins you the ball but nobody really talks about it it just kind of happens well, why don't we create an environment where that can happen and it's like afforded and it's encouraged? And so now, shoot, like you said, how many times on a breakout were you in that run, and you weren't just running; you were like running and hand fighting the whole time? Let's train it. Let's make it part of who you are. It's it's such good stuff.
1: I was always um, the 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 tag for me was you've been too nice. You're always too nice, but I probably and I probably was to be fair, but I hadn't been exposed and put in these situations to develop that confidence, to be a little bit nastier and a bit a bit more comfortable in using your arms, using your hips, using your ass to get in and you know manipulating the the space and 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 like you say, just getting that little inch of of space can can be the difference between. Scoring to try, not scoring to try. Scoring a goal, not scoring a goal. So yeah, super super. Comfort
0: equals confidence, and yeah, you know, the the age old thing is, the the question we want our players to be able to answer is, have I been there before? And so, like, we don't want game day to be the time you've been like, whoa, I've, what is, what is this? And so, if we can make a situation where they've been there before, those moments become highly uh, processable and way more easier to manage. And then the same thing, uh, whether it's American football or, or soccer football, you know, coaches are always yelling, be more aggressive, get in there. And it's like, well, that's, I hate to break you. That's not a magic coaching cue. Nobody, no, no player ever heard a coach yell, be more aggressive from the sideline and suddenly turned into just like a pit bull and a wolf out there. It's like, well, how do I stress inoculate you? How do I build this up? And so I start with these pre-engaged games. We, we build to little bumps and things. We build it into uh, a one-on-one, a two-on-two, you know, just the same way we would do with all of our skill training. We build it up in this stress inoculation phase. And now you're, now you're happy, you're comfortable. And now you find yourself being more aggressive precisely because almost that psychological block has, has been removed. You know what's coming. You're comfortable in the environment. You you know the hit, the bump is there, and you know you can manage it. And you know if you lose the bump, you have tools to be able to fight back in. Fantastic. Guess what? That player is going to appear much more aggressive, and I think it's because they have tools and they have uh, like a psychological comfort with, with what's going on.
1: So when it comes to the, the wrestling and grappling, more um, American football and, and rugby orientated. Although I would have benefited from that as a football player, soccer player. What does them What do them sessions look like? Can you give us some examples of how people may start implementing some of that stuff or taking it on another level based on what you've seen and yeah. your experience?
0: So we we bucket our training kind of into four categories, and they're not revolutionary. And really what they do is just help coach this program. So we'll start off with basics, you know, how to fall for really low level kid, really entry level kids. But it's going to be uh, crawling, tumbling, carries, and then grapples. And we say grapples because obviously, uh, like I said, wrestling is huge here in the States, but in other, other countries, it, it may be judo, it may be Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Choose your grappling art. I, I don't care, but those ideas of those battles. So first, you know, we're going to, we're going to crawl and we're going to tumble again, give athletes the tools to go to ground successfully. So they're confident in that. And that, again sometimes you you may go for the 50 50 ball because if you lose the collision you know how to fall and roll and and you're totally comfortable there football and rugby uh the play doesn't end until people are on the ground so you you better get used to that at some point um i like carries a lot just for for posture for strength it's great entry level kind of strength training programs so you know kind of love just various carries and the kids enjoy them so it's a great way to to uh implement some kind of body-to-body contact some squeezing some carrying some straining and some bracing and then we get into grapples uh but grapples don't have to be kind of these hand-based you know judo jujitsu uh freestyle folk style wrestling like i said it could be hip to hip shoulder to shoulder uh i i say like any kind of push pull game in which you're trying to either win or hold space uh works and then simply choose your sport and and decide which kind of engagements you're going to use. Hey, you're allowed to grab them. You can use your hands. Okay, that's engagement one. Hey, soccer players or basketball players, you're only allowed to use your, you know, hips, shoulders, and, you know, that little bit of kind of arm fighting hooks and and, and, uh, handoffs. Perfect. We have some constraints. We can set the drills, but we're going to win space or we're going to hold space. And if you use kind of those big... Kind of models you, you can really create about anything. Um, I like to to do, like I said, a session, and it may be just like a, a ten minute block of the training session. So, hey, we're going to do our dynamic warm up, and then we're going to do a ten minute um, crawl and carry block. Uh, 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 you know, we're going to go, I don't know, 10 meters down, 10 meters back with various crawls and various carries. You know, we may start something like uh, two sets of eight and you're just going to go down and back with your partner. Perfect. Now we're super warmed up. Our nervous system is excited. We're feeling good. Now we're going to go jump, throw and lift some weights. Awesome. You, you did it for the day. Um, uh, uh, the general progression for me is going to be crawls and carries um, into player-to-player grapple, so you kind of earn the right to do the fun stuff. Show me you can be strong and hold your posture. Show me if you fall down, you're going to be okay, and you can tumble. All right, now you guys can or gals can go have at it and push and pull and fight and battle a little bit. So, like I said, crawls, carries, into partner pushes. Um, with older athletes, I I do actually love extended time, almost like, uh, aerobic conditioning, uh, kind of Joel Jameson roadwork 2.0 stuff, you know, up 15, 30 seconds of work, pushing back and forth, grappling, pummeling, all that kind of stuff. The younger athletes who don't know how to control their intensity, uh, very well, it, it tends to become more aggressive and really kind of going at it. So maybe it fits better kind of in like that anaerobic kind of explosive work. Work where it's you know i don't know six to ten seconds of you know trying to win the line or trying to get to the cone in those kind of box out shielding style drills and then within within that model you can just program your time domains um i like uh on the minute every minute for group sessions just because it makes it really easy to, to coach right so it's like uh we're gonna have you know a 10 10 second battle and then a, a 50 second rest and it's like group one goes uh every on the on the zero group two goes on the 32nd and you can just flip back and forth and and you can easily have you know 40 50 athletes doing this on a field really quickly and again like I said i use that on the minute block just because it makes it easy and then it's like all right you know aerobic day 70 percent intensity 30 seconds on 30 seconds off and that way you have some structure to it and it just boom 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 your 10 minute block is done Everyone's got some work in. Go on to the rest of your session, uh, and then for our contact collision sports, uh, rugby and football specifically, I love it as what I would call a specialized warm up. So again, after our generic kind of dynamic movement based warm up, we're going to do uh, three to four kind of grapple, crawl, carry activities, kind of get the body primed, and then we'll go into our or technical collision work, whether that's block, tackle, rock. So, so be it. So you can kind of micro it there. Uh, also, uh, great for like finishers, you know, challenge kind of a thing. Hey, we finished our conditioning. Now we're going to have a little fun. We're going to do a little competition. So you could throw it at the end of a workout like that. Hey, great lift guys. Now we're going to have a little fun. We're going to do this little uh you know i don't know bear crawl grapple game or whatever it might be so it could be beginning as part of the warm-up it could be the end as kind of a, a finisher challenge competition fun kind of thing uh there are lots of ways to do it and then uh with your advanced athletes we do it a lot at, for conditioning uh, especially position specific you know a, a tight five forward or a lineman Uh, In American football, uh, those guys run a lot less than some of the other guys. So it's like, hey, you know what we're going to do one day a week? Like we're going to have a strong man grapple based fighting based conditioning. And so we're going to get some of that non running physical work that is really kind of how you make your living. Uh, you know, like you, you make your living battling other giant humans. So, you know how we're going to prepare you. We're going to spend some time each week battling other giant humans. And, uh, like I said, anyone who's done it, you know, you know, that grappling can be absolutely exhausting. It's almost a different kind of, of muscular fitness. And so in addition to all of the running we're going to need for our sports, don't get me wrong. Like you, you got to cover your, your mileage, but, uh, you may want to program some of that in so that, um, uh, they're ready for that and they're like I said in the whether it's the 70th minute or whether it's the fourth quarter they're up for the physical the physical battle that, that's gonna come so it, it just takes so many different ways like I said it could be part of a youth development program it could be warm-up it could be a finisher it could be a dedicated session or it could just be a 10 minute block you know before you go hit your bench presses um, it, as long as you kind of go by the general things earn the right, uh uh crawls and carries before battles and then like i said uh keeping an eye on intensity for aerobic versus anaerobic and how much uh, volume you want Uh, a good strength and conditioning coach with any sort of kind of background and understanding of those principles will easily be able to put together a, a really great session
1: Perfect. Well, we're coming up to the the hour that I promised you I'd, uh, I'd keep you for, but the, we, can, we can't discuss this without neck tra- without throwing in neck training as well. So where does this fit in? How does it fit in with the tackle stuff, youth athletes, um, older athletes, and what, what are your thoughts on when they should be introduced? How... We had Gavin Pratt from the USC, UFC who did an amazing job of taking us through this, the UFC neck matrix. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts as well.
0: Yeah, so I, I think the research at this point is pretty clear on increases in neck strength and decreases in uh, uh, some of the outcomes of some of those like concussion-related injuries. So I think we all, all feel good about that. Um, I think it should be included in... And everyone's training, again, depending on the sport, maybe how much as far as a volume standpoint, rugby football athletes are going to are going to do it all the time. You know, for a soccer player, it's probably going to be be much less. But ultimately, at some point, like if you're going to head the ball a lot. You want to make sure you, you have that. I'm a big believer in obviously like the. Easy strength, you know, but our our basic eccentric concentric traditional exercises, both uh, flexion, extension, and then the lateral flexion exercises are are, are great. Um, you know, I think that that's kind of the low hanging fruit because it's it's really simple. I'm also a huge believer in, in the isometrics as well. So you know, something as simple as a band and anywhere you can hook a band gives you the ability to do your isometrics. Um, Uh, within your programming, again, extension, flexion, lateral flexion. Uh, I do like with the the bands. I think it's easier to work on the uh, rotational isometrics. And then I'm a huge fan of uh, William Whalen, a guy out there in the UK, Um, his quasi-isometric series. So he may have a band that's pulling laterally, and then you're going to do flexion-extension front-to-back nods. Or you have a band pulling uh, from the back to front, so you're kind of in this um, extension isometric, and then you're going to do your your lateral flexion. So you're, you're working through these ranges of motions while uh, the band is pulling you in the opposite direction. I love that quasi-isometric series. That's one of my absolute favorites. Um, Absolute favorites because I, I, you know, I like the idea of bracing one direction while having dynamic movements because that's really what happens in sports. So I think if you look at kind of those three buckets: your uh, traditional exercises, your isometrics, and then your your quasi-isometrics, you have a great pool of exercises uh, to be able to, to program it. I mean, even to this day, I know it doesn't look like it since uh, I don't uh, rock and tackle anymore and i don't wear a helmet which by the way just wearing a helmet tends to build pretty good neck strength because you have this giant thing on your head at all times uh, but i still train my neck even to this day one day a week i do uh flexion extension and then one day a week i do uh, lateral flexion to both sides and then one day a week i do um the William Whalen Quasi-Isometric Series. And that's my three days of the week. I still, now it's like part of my warm-up. It's not obviously like, you know, a meat and potatoes of like when I was playing American football and rugby, we'd have what we call our armor building, kind of, so at the end of a session, you know, you're going to do your upright rows your shrugs your lateral raises you know neck uh your, your traps shoulder kind of meat that's going to protect you and neck was always part of that armor building and it was maybe more of a focus but now it's included my warm-up sessions where it's like you know you're i'm doing all my band work and my overhead uh, dislocations and my band pull-aparts and my rotator cuff and i Throw in a little bit of neck work, and that's part of my warm up. I, I think it's that important that I still do it to this day. So uh, I don't know if that's a scientific answer, but it's certainly rooted deep within me on how strong I believe in it.
1: Love that, Andy. Right, I've definitely kept you um, a little bit longer than, than I said I would. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on Early Doors and, and having a chat with us and, and going through some of this stuff because it's, it's something I've wanted to chat about with you for uh, for a while. So I really appreciate it. Well, like I said, well, I if, hope if, my if boss was...
0: doesn't hear this, but I'd much rather be doing this than doing real work. So uh, anytime, this is the good stuff.
1: <laughs> good man. No, thank you very much. If anyone wants to jump in and, and follow you on Instagram, Twitter, any social media, I'll, I'll get to know a little bit more about you and your work. Where's the best place?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram. I'm ADR. Uh, coach development, uh, so ADR my initials. Uh, coach development, I believe it's Coach Dev on on Twitter, uh, and then uh, at USA Football uh, because I work for them. Most of my writings, most of my articles are, are on USAFootball.com. Uh, admittedly, I don't have a great place where they're like uh, uh, kind of consolidated in one place, but you can you can find them on there. So a lot of stuff on the development of youth athletes, and then some drill development, tackle techniques stuff. That's where uh, uh, my write, my writings are. And again, uh, available on email. Again, like I said, this is what I get to do for a living is try to help develop young athletes and, and help work with uh, older kind of elite athletes. So always keen to, to take an email, answer some questions and try to help someone out in, in this space if my experience can be useful. Uh, fantastically like I said I, I lucked into it because of my experiences, maybe not my talent. And so uh, at least I can do is pass it on
1: beautiful right andy thank you very much really appreciate it look forward to keeping in touch and uh yeah see what develops further on the line
0: yes sir much appreciated again it's an honor so like you said i've uh i've listened to it for long enough that holy cow how the world turns now i'm on it
1: (laughs) thanks for the support mate cheers speak soon thanks for tuning in to episode 480 of the pacey performance podcast Big thanks to Andy for coming on, sharing his wisdom and knowledge about all things tackle technique, all things neck strengthening, grappling, and wrestling. Like I say, I think this is very applicable to anyone that is in contact sports—not those, not just those in high collision sports. Big thanks to Play, to Val Performance, and to Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. I'm looking forward to chatting to you next time.